Hello, everyone, and welcome to the November 17th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Fols, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A WCAB panel ruled that a claim administrator's failure to provide notification of the UR results by fax, telephone, or email invalidates the UR process. Here's what happened in the case of Rivera versus Valley Radiology. Kimberly Rivera injured her back while working for Valley Radiology in 2010. Dr. Norman Cahan was the primary treating physician. Dr. Cahan issued a request for authorization in 2013 requesting acupuncture and medications. The parties dispute the day the defendant received the RFA. Applicant claims the date was July 5 and defendant claims it was July 8. The UR non-certification was dated on July 16, yet it indicates a determination date of July 15, a day earlier, and has a proof of service also of July 15. Thus, the work comp judge characterized it as internally inconsistent. The parties attended an expedited hearing and submitted the medical treatment issue for determination. The work comp judge determined that UR was untimely and therefore the medical treatment was not subject to independent medical review. The defendant disputes the determination that the UR was untimely and petitioned for reconsideration, which was denied in the panel decision of Rivera versus Valley Radiology. The regulations specify that the RFA shall be deemed to have been received on the date the request was received if the facsimile electronically date stamps the transmission. If there is no electronically stamped date recorded, then the date the request was transmitted is deemed the date upon which the RFA was received. Here, the defendant offered no evidence of what the receiving facsimile recorded or when it was received. As such, the regulations are clear that the received date is deemed to be July, 15, July 5. The UR determination was therefore due by July 12. The UR letter is dated July 16 and an internally inconsistent proof of service was dated July 15. Thus, the work comp judge reasoned that utilizing either date really makes no difference as the UR determination was due by July 12 and therefore untimely in either case. The defendant claimed for the first time on reconsideration that it has an additional 24 hours pursuant to the regulations in which to communicate the decision and therefore the July 16 determination was timely. The panel rejected this argument. The Labor Code provides that UR decisions shall be communicated to physicians initially by telephone or facsimile and to the physician and employee in writing within 24 hours for concurrent review or within two business days for prospective review. The administrative director rules require a decision to be communicated to the requesting physician within 24 hours initially by telephone, facsimile, or electronic mail. The panel concluded that there was no evidence that the defendant communicated their decision initially by telephone, facsimile, or electronic mail before it served written notice on July 15. Therefore, it found the defendant's UR to be untimely. 
It affirmed the findings and award. Another WCAB panel decision ruled that an employer's UR decision is effective for 12 months unless there has been a change in circumstances. Here's what happened in the case of Reyes versus Target. Martha Reyes sustained an admitted industrial injury while working for Target. Dr. Sobal, her primary treating physician, submitted a request for authorization in February 2014 seeking authority for home care assistance. Utilization Review evaluated the request and denied it in March of 2014. The applicant did not claim any material defect in that UR decision. Applicant claims to have sought IMR of that UR decision, but before any IMR result occurred, Dr. Sobal then submitted a second similar request in May 2014. The form of the second request indicates it is to be a new request rather than a resubmission based upon change in material facts. The second request was untimely denied by Utilization Review in June. This second untimely UR denial in June forms the basis of the present controversy. Applicant filed a DOR to proceed to expedited hearing, voicing an objection to the second utilization review determination as being untimely. The work comp judge determined that Labor Code Sections 4610G6 bars the applicant from litigating the second June UR denial as the same requested treatment was previously denied and there had been no material change in circumstances necessitating another utilization review. The WCAB panel agreed. It concluded that the first UR decision is effective for 12 months without further action by the employer. It was immaterial that applicant's physician's second RFA was not timely. The defendant could properly have disregarded the new RFA and not issued a UR decision at all. The dismissal of an injured cafeteria worker's discrimination case was affirmed by the Court of Appeal. Here's what happened in the case of Wyckoff versus Paradise Unified School District. Sally Wyckoff was working for Paradise Unified School District as a cafeteria worker. The job required the ability to stand, stoop, reach and bend, and to grasp and manipulate small objects, and to lift, push, and pull objects, which may approximate 50 pounds and may occasionally weigh up to 100 pounds. She reported to her employer that she had sustained a right shoulder injury caused by repetitive use associated with her job and completed a workers' compensation claim form. The employer admitted the injury. Wyckoff had shoulder surgery in 2009. A series of letters followed discussing her sick leave benefits and other rights to illness and accident leave for employees who are part of classified employment. Wyckoff also met with several district employees to discuss her options late in 2009. She was offered part-time work as a food services manager which would not require pulling, pushing, or lifting. However, she would not receive health insurance for part-time work. She was also told she could ask the school board to extend her leave. She ultimately applied for early retirement after her other efforts to return to work were unsuccessful. 
Wyckoff then filed a civil complaint against the district alleging disability discrimination in violation of the Fair Employment and Housing Act. Ultimately, the district's summary judgment motion was granted by the trial court and her case was dismissed. The dismissal was affirmed by the Court of Appeal in the unpublished case. The trial court found that the district offered and provided reasonable accommodation. Wyckoff was unable to do the basic and essential job duties of a cafeteria worker and that there was no vacant position and no accommodation that would have allowed Wyckoff to return to her position as a cafeteria worker without making other people do Wyckoff's job or hiring another employee to assist Wyckoff in doing her job. Wyckoff's release for work from her physician placed restrictions on her ability to work of no heavy work with the right arm and no lifting over 20 pounds. With those restrictions, Wyckoff was not able to do the basic and essential job duties of a cafeteria worker. Wyckoff admitted in her deposition that most, if not all, of her essential job functions were problematic for her right shoulder. She admitted there was no way she could have returned to work in her prior capacity in October 2009. She stated that at the time of the deposition, she still could not do the work that she did five years earlier and that it was still painful when she engaged in repetitive lifting, pushing, and pulling. She was still not allowed to do overhead work with her right arm or lift more than 20 pounds. Given this undisputed evidence, there was no requirement that the district do more to ascertain Wyckoff's ability to perform her job. Under such circumstances, there was no evidence that the district failed to participate in the interactive process as required by law. And now our fraud report. A former clerical employee for the Loma Linda University Medical Center was arraigned on four felony counts of workers' compensation insurance fraud and one count of perjury and now faces an eight-year sentence. 44-year-old Tameka Levon Tyler Willey of San Bernardino filed a workers' compensation insurance claim in 2012 for an injury at work. Prosecutors allege she was untruthful about the manner in which she was injured and as to the extent of those injuries reported to her physicians and at a deposition under oath. Tyler Willey pleaded not guilty to all counts. If convicted, she faces eight years and eight months in county prison and a fine of up to $150,000. This case is being prosecuted by Deputy District Attorney David Simon. And a Victorville woman used someone else's internet photographs to fake her workers' compensation burn injury. 38-year-old Selena Edwards claimed that an unsecured lid caused steaming hot McDonald's coffee to spill on her right hand, severely burning it. As supporting evidence, she provided pictures of second-degree burns. But the photos and medical documents Edward provided to bolster her case came from the Internet. Edwards also submitted counterfeit documentation for treatment that she claimed to have received from a local hospital. The San Bernardino County District Attorney charged Edwards with 21 felony counts of insurance fraud and workers' compensation fraud. The prosecution of Edwards comes 20 years 
after a jury awarded $2.9 million to a 79-year-old woman who was badly burned after hot coffee spilled into her lap at a McDonald's in Albuquerque. The 1994 verdict attracted international attention and was mocked by radio and television talk show hosts and was even used as a plot pilot in the TV comedy Seinfeld. ABC News called the case the poster child of excessive lawsuits, while the legal scholar Jonathan Turley argued that the claim was a meaningful and worthy lawsuit. In June 2011, HBO premiered Hot Coffee, a documentary that discussed in depth how the case has centered in debates on tort reform. Despite the controversy, the woman in that case, Stella Liebeck, actually did suffer severe third-degree burns and required skin graft surgery. The merit of those cases aside, uh, Commissioner Jones said, that every year tens of thousands of cases that potentially involve fraud are referred to his agency. In the last 11 months, there have been 26,415 fraud cases, about 1,549 of which remain open. And in regulatory news, the DWC has made further changes to its California EDI Implementation Guide, version 2.0, pursuant to revisions of the Workers' Compensation Information System regulations. The changes are subject to an additional public comment period of 15 days. This comment period will close on November 28. The California legislature enacted sweeping reforms to California's workers' compensation system, also known as WCIS, in 1993. The legislature directed the DWC to put together comprehensive information about workers' compensation in California. The result is the WCIS. The WCIS has four components. The first, reports of injury reporting guidelines, were implemented March 1, 2000. The subsequent reports of injury reporting guidelines were implemented the following July. Reporting of annual summary of benefits began January 31, 2001, and the fourth component, medical bill payment reporting regulations, were adopted on March 22, 2006. Medical services are required to be reported to the WCIS by all claims administrators handling 150 or more total claims per year. Medical bill payment records are processed by diverse organizations, large multi-state insurance companies, smaller specialty insurance carriers, self-insured employers or insurers, third-party administrators handling claims on behalf of self-insured employers, as well as bill review companies. The organizations have widely differing technological capabilities, so the WCIS is designed to be as flexible as possible in supporting EDI medical transmissions. EDI is the computer-to-computer -computer exchange of data or information in a standardized format. The DWC incorporated the primary technical changes to the California EDI Implementation Guide version 2.0 proposed by members of the workers' compensation community, including these new proposed changes. 
The DWC believes that these updates will allow WCIS to collect more robust and useful data that will assist with research regarding workers' compensation issues. The notice and text of the regulations can be found on the proposed regulations page. SB863 has now forced a large self-insured staffing company to replace their self-insurance program with an insurance policy, perhaps in the nick of time. Legislators were concerned about unmanageable workers' compensation losses by staffing companies who were self-insured in California and, as part of SB863, required them to become insured as of the end of this year. Perhaps this legislative premonition was well-founded. Shares of Vancouver-based staffing company Barrett Business Services were down more than 50% after the company announced a big quarterly loss late last month. The company attributed the loss to an $80 million pre-tax increase in self-insured workers' compensation reserves, which effectively wiped out its pre-tax earnings for the past five years. The Vancouver, Washington company has 50 locations in 10 states and dozens of offices in Northern and Southern California. BBSI offers both temporary and long-term staffing to some 1,750 small and mid-sized businesses. Its staffing services focus on light industrial, clerical, and technical businesses. Each year, about 90% of its PEO revenue comes from customers residing in the states of California and Oregon. The company is a self-insured employer with respect to workers' compensation coverage for all of its employees working in California, Oregon, Maryland, Delaware, and Colorado. The company maintains excess workers' compensation insurance through its wholly owned captive insurance company, Associated Insurance Company for Excess, with a per-occurrence retention of $5 million, except in Maryland and Colorado. As a result of SB863, BBSI entered into a workers' compensation insurance agreement with ACE to provide coverage to BBSI employees in California beginning in the first quarter of 2014. The arrangement, typically known as a fronted program, provides BBSI a licensed, admitted insurance carrier in California to issue policies on behalf of BBSI without the intention of transferring any of the workers' compensation risk for the first $5 million per claim. The risk of loss up to the first $5 million per claim is retained by BBSI through an indemnity agreement. ACE bears the economic burden for all costs in excess of $5 million per claim. The arrangement with ACE addressed the requirements of SB863, under which the company cannot continue its self-insurance program in California beyond January 1, 2015. A number of attorneys are investigating the company, and at least one has filed a class action lawsuit on behalf of a class compromising purchasers of BBSI securities. The complaint alleges that defendants made false and or misleading statements and failed to disclose material adverse facts about the company's operations and financial performance and prospects. CalOSHA has cited fuel distribution company National Distribution Services, Inc., nearly $100,000 
following an investigation into an explosion at the company's Corona facility that killed one employee and left another with severe burns. The owner of the company has been previously cited for similar incidents. Last May, two employees attempted welding operations on a 9,000-gallon tanker truck containing an unknown amount of crude oil. The tank had not been purged or tested for flammable vapors, resulting in the explosion. 52-year-old Samuel Ensisco was a welder who had been with NDS for four years. He was found dead on the floor of the facility with his right hand and lower arm completely severed. A second employee with five years of experience suffered burns to more than 50% of his body. Cal OSHA determined that NDS contributed to this incident by failing to have required safety procedures in place for working with flammable vapors. Additionally, investigators found that NDS failed to train employees on the dangers of welding near combustible materials. The director of the DIR, Christine Baker, said, California requires employers to have and adhere to an injury and illness prevention program. Baker also noted that this preventable death is a reminder of what can happen when that requirement is ignored. While investigating the May 6 event, investigators learned about a previous explosion at the Corona facility that occurred under similar circumstances and involved these same two NDS employees. On September 25, 2012, the lid of a fuel tanker blew through the ceiling of the repair facility after the employees commenced welding on a truck filled with flammable vapors. No injuries occurred on that date. The owner of NDS, Carl Bradley Johansson, served a prison term following a previous similar incident. In the 1990s, Johansson operated a business in Montebello known as Atlas Bulk Carriers. On September 27, 1993, there was an explosion involving welding operations on a fuel tanker that had also not been purged or tested. This incident also took the life of a welder employed by the company. Atlas Bolt Carriers was cited by Cal OSHA for this incident. And in medical news, recent litigation has raised questions about the authenticity of surgical screws used in spine implants at various hospitals in Southern California. Plaintiffs are alleging counterfeit hardware implants were used during their surgeries. The topic of questioning the manufacturing credentials of medical suppliers is now proving to be a best practice in claims administration. It is important to know more about what is at the forefront of implant technologies so that better treatment choices can be made. Unfortunately, the UR-IMR process typically answers only the question about should someone have a surgery. It typically omits answering any questions about what brands of surgical implant devices are the best choice for the job. Here is some news about the latest surgical products recently approved by the FDA for spine surgeries. The Medicrea Group has announced the company has received FDA clearance for UNID, the world's first patient-specific final osteosynthesis rod. The technology will be premiered at the 2014 North American Spine Society annual meeting this year in San Francisco. 
UNID is the first patient-specific device cleared to treat degenerative spine conditions, including scoliosis and other types of deformities. According to the National Scoliosis Foundation, an estimated 6 million people in the U.S. have scoliosis. Each year, scoliosis patients make more than 600,000 visits to private physicians' offices, and an estimated 38,000 patients undergo spinal fusion surgery. Adult spinal deformity surgery is likely to increase in frequency, with as much as 32% of the adult population suffering from scoliosis and a prevalence of 60% among the elderly. Hospital costs of adult spinal deformity surgery can exceed $100,000 per patient. Revisions and reoperations place a large financial burden on the healthcare system, increasing the average cost of adult spinal deformity surgery by more than 70%. The UNID patient-specific rods are universal implants available in two alloys and two diameters that match global standards. Medicrea's customized spine implant platform also includes the UNID anterior lumbar interbody fusion spine cages created with a 3D printer. With the support of specific software and, and advanced imaging, the customized cages exactly reproduce the anatomic details of a patient's vertebral end plates. The product estimates the need to manually contour a rod during surgery, which directly impacts infection rates and quality of recovery. The customized rod claims to offer numerous benefits to surgeons and patients undergoing this spine surgery. The primary benefit is it allows surgeons to plan and then execute their operating strategy without compromises or approximation errors. Surgeons can improve their success rate in terms of global sagittal patient alignment and reduce the risk of spinal implant failure. Obamacare open enrollment is now in effect for next year, but people shopping online for health insurance plans under Obama's health care law may encounter a new set of problems, one of them being unexpected new costs. HealthcareGov launched for the first time a year ago, but tech snafus made it virtually unusable for weeks. This year, insurance industry officials, congressional aides, and analysts say potential problems will mainly affect current Obamacare policyholders and could intensify public hostility toward the law. Premiums overall appear stable, although some existing plans may rise in price and newer policies may offer customers better terms. But there is concern about how smoothly the administration will handle the some 5.9 million 2014 policyholders expected to re-enroll. Some experts say the challenge of re-enrolling millions while adding millions of newcomers could be behind this week's sharp reduction in official enrollment forecasts for 2015. An estimated 4.4 million people could opt simply to have their policies renewed automatically by December 15. But many of those could wind up with unexpectedly higher costs 
as insurers raise premiums on existing policies. Even those who actively hunt for cheaper plans could still face issues. Some consumers who cancel existing coverage could initially be billed twice, once for each plan, because the government has no automated system for notifying insurers of such changes. And policyholders who got subsidies to help pay for 2014 coverage could also be told to return some of that money if their incomes rose later in the year and they did not notify the government. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device for searching by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.